Let's continue to worship this morning as we take our Bibles and turn to the 34th chapter of Genesis. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named David Dykes. David tells funny stories all the time, and so I I love to hear his messages. And he told the story one time of this guy who was always bragging about what a great hunter he was. You know people like that. You know, he killed a deer, the biggest deer. He killed the biggest bear and all this stuff. So his buddies got tired of it one day. And so they were out on a hunt. And so they sent him out into the woods on a bear hunt, and they had slipped in blanks in his shotgun. And they sent him out to hunt a grizzly bear. And they were so tickled about this. They were sitting around the camp, the cabin there, playing cards and laughing about their friend. That bear's going to skin him alive. And so this guy starts slipping through the woods and he sees a big old grizzly bear. And sure enough, he raises his gun, his shotgun, and bow, shoots the bear. The bear just turns and looks at him against the growl. So he fires again, bow, doesn't even phase the bear. And the bear takes off chasing this man. And so the guy takes off running toward the cabin. He's running for his life. The bear's gaining on him. And right as he gets to the cabin, he trips on the step. He falls down. The bear lunges and goes right through the door into the place where the guys are playing cards, scattering tables, chips and cards going everywhere and just causing a problem. And the old guy struts kind of like Barney Fife. And he opens the door and says, you boys skin that one and I'll go get you another one. <laughs> I love that story. Jacob had been running from some bears, okay? Jacob had a a run-in with Laban, his father-in-law. He left. He kind of slipped away from Laban. Laban's coming after him. He's angry because he accuses Jacob of stealing, kidnapping his children and grandchildren. He's going to meet Esau, his brother. He'd stolen his birthright. I mean, he's got a bear chasing him, and he's going into the woods to face another bear. But you know what happened? Everything worked out good for Jacob. Laban caught up with him. They made peace. Esau met him. And Esau says, you know, he, somehow God had worked in his heart. And he just forgave Jacob for cheating him out of his birthright. But now we find in Genesis chapter 34 that Jacob has to deal with another bear. And this bear is within his own family. It's another trial, another conflict that happens to his family. Chapter 34, let me just warn you, it's a very graphic story. It's a story of lust, sexual assault, a story of deceit, and cold-blooded murder. You know, I've wondered, as many have, why would a chapter like chapter 34 be in the Bible? You know, Moses wrote this, and Moses could have left this part out. If he really wanted to flatter the Hebrew nation and the founding fathers, he could have left this chapter out. Or maybe he could have doctored it up a little bit and made it a little more palatable for us. But it's just blunt. I believe the reason chapter 34 is in the Bible is because the Bible is a real story about real people who serve a real God. And we're going to see a lot of truth for us today from Genesis chapter 34. So the story begins in actually chapter 33, okay? Let's look, go back up at verse 17 of chapter 33. Jacob has met Esau. Esau wants to kind of escort him with his army of 400 men. And here's the deal. Esau, Jacob tells Esau, you go ahead and I'll meet you at Seir. I'm going to come along slowly with all my cattle and livestock and all my children. We're going to move a little bit slowly, so we'll meet you at Seir. So what does Jacob do? Instead of going to Seir, he takes a left turn. He goes north to a place called Succoth. 
Now, did Jacob's GPS malfunction? No. It's just Jacob being Jacob. He told Esau, I'll see you at Seir, and he goes the opposite direction. He comes to a place called Succoth. Verse 17, Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths or shelters for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. Let me see, names are very important in our message this morning, okay? So Succoth means booths or shelters. And so he stayed there. He built barns for his livestock. He, scripture says there that he built for himself a house there. And then verse 18, Jacob is on the move again. He came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, the promised land. When he came from Padam Aram and he camped before the city of Shechem. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father. Now, here's the confusing part. Listen to me. Everybody, eyes up. Okay? There's a city named Shechem. There's also a young man named Shechem. Okay? The young man's father is named Hamor. And he's he's a major player in our story this morning. But they're living before the city named Shechem. And Shechem means slope. Or shoulder, slope, okay? So Shechem is a city that's built on a slope, the slope of Mount Gerizim. And so that's why we title the message, The Slippery Slope of Shechem, okay? So here we are. That's a lot of S's. Anyway, so here now Jacob is living just before the city of Shechem. And Hamar is the local prince and his son's name is Shechem. So he bought from land, verse 19 of chapter 33. Now, verse 20, this is important. Abraham, excuse me, Jacob erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. That God is the God of Israel. Okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the story that we're about to look at. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, may we heed the warning of Genesis 34. May we hear the message. Lord, may we examine our lives and be honest to search our own hearts, Lord, to see if there be any wicked way in us, Lord, and that you would lead us in the everlasting way. Father, speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's here's what's happened so far. When Jacob was living with Laban, God spoke to him. And said, you need to return back to Bethel. Go back to Bethel. Remember Bethel, the house of God? This is a place in Genesis 28 where Jacob had this encounter with the living God. And so Jacob leaves Laban and he's going back and he comes into Canaan. He stays at Succoth for a while. Now he's moved to Shechem. But he's not at Bethel. There's kind of a 10-year period here of silence where we don't hear God speaking to him. We don't hear Jacob worshiping God. There's, he settles in at a place called Shechem on the slope of Mount Gerizim for 10 years. And so for 10 years, there's this silence. But see, life is good. Life is good for, she- for uh, Jacob. He's not fighting any bears. It's comfortable there. He's built a house. He's built barns for his livestock. And he's kind of settled in right in, the, in a tent. He, he pitches his tent right before the city of Shechem. Now he does, verse 33, 20, he builds an altar there. 
And so this is kind of a, a, a symbol that this is going to be Jacob's home. And he's settling in near Shechem. So as he's there, our story unfolds. Chapter 34, verse 1. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, and they said we two Shechems, okay? There's the city, and then there's the young man. Verse 2. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, saw Dinah, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Verse 5, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. So we have this picture here of what we would call sexual assault. Dinah, they've been in here about 10 years. Remember when Jacob came out of the land with Laban, his children were small. Now she's probably 15 or 16 years old. She goes to visit her girlfriends in Shechem, the city. And while she's there, this young man, Shechem, attacks her. In verses 6 and 7, we see that Shechem and his father go out to visit Jacob. They come to try to negotiate a marriage. They want to have a marriage arrangement between uh, Dinah and this young man. They seem to think that this type of behavior is ordinary behavior. Hamar, Shechem's father, nor Shechem himself offers any kind of explanation or any kind of apology. And so when Dinah's, so they're coming to talk to Jacob. Let's, let's establish a relationship here. Shechem genuinely loves Dinah. Scripture says he spoke to her tenderly, to her heart. He tried to woo her and charm her with his ways, but he had already violated her. So Shechem gets his father and says, look, let's go and talk to Jacob and see if I can get this young girl to be my wife. So while they're having this negotiation, Dinah's brothers come back. Now, this is another thing. Dinah and Simeon and Levi were all born to Leah. So they were full-blooded brothers and sisters. And this only intensifies the rage and pain that Levi and Simeon feel because their sister Dinah had been violated by this young man named Shechem. They had been, she had been disgraced. You can see all of that in scripture there. We won't take time to read. They were grieved, verse 7. They were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing ought not to be done. So, As they are coming back, they find out what's happened to their sister. Meanwhile, Hamar and Shechem in verses 8 through 12, they're still bargaining. They want Jacob to give Dinah to Shechem. As a matter of fact, they want Jacob to okay a plan where all of their daughters can intermarry with the Canaanite men. And the Canaanite daughters can be given to the Israelite men. And we're just going to be one happy family. The Shechemites and the Israelites all here living together, intermarried. And so this is where Dinah's brothers step in. They said, it's not right for us to intermarry. 
because we're the people of God. And, and they say this kind of, you know, out of the corner of their mouth. They're, they're not being told. We're the people of God. We're all circumcised. We're set apart for God. So here's what we'll do. If you will go get all the men of Shechem to be circumcised, all the males, then we'll intermarry with you. Oh, Shechem, the guy loves Dinah so much. He goes back and he's well-respected. And by the way, circumcision was not unique to the Jews. It was also a procedure that was used many times to men who were of marriageable age. So this kind of made sense to Shechem. I want to marry this girl. So he persuaded all of his buddies to be circumcised. And then you know the story after three days and the third day when they were in all, all this pain. Verse 25 and 26 of chapter 34. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, Leah, same mother, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamar, the father. And his son Shechem with the edge of the sword. They took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Verse 27. Jacob's sons came in upon the slain. This is up, their brothers got involved. What did they do? They looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and which was in the field. They captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. So what happened? The brothers took revenge for their sister Dinah's disgrace. Now, one thing I didn't mention, but when Jacob heard what happened to Dinah, we see that in verse 5. It says that he was silent. Jacob kept silent until the brothers came in. Here's Jacob's response in verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me. By making me odious or smell a stench among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, and I and my household. Jacob said, I'm going to be in big trouble because of what you guys have done. But listen to the brother's response. This is how they justified their action. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? So what they were doing, they were getting revenge for their sister having been disgraced. This morning, it's obvious that the sons are the ones who carried out the massacre. And they are the ones who literally have blood on their hands. But I want us to see that Jacob was guilty as well. How could Jacob share the blame? Two things. Number one, Jacob settles in a land just short of Bethel. Jacob settles in a land just short of Bethel. Remember, God spoke to him and said, I want you to return to Bethel, the house of God. This is the place where Jacob had encountered the living God personally. This is where Jacob had made a vow to God. I will give a tenth of all that I own to you. This is where God had promised Jacob, I will return you safely to this place. So Jacob was returning to Bethel, but he stopped at Shechem the city on a slope. Jacob seems to be in no hurry to fulfill his commitment to the Lord. And he'd settled down there. He'd even built an altar. And by the way, listen to me, church. Shechem is just one day's journey from Bethel. He was close, wasn't he? 
Jacob was close, but he was not where he was supposed to be. And we will see that he was not where he was supposed to be physically, and he was not where he should have been spiritually. You see the compromise here. He was going toward Bethel, the house of God, and he settles for Shechem, a city on a slope. Jacob had weathered the storms of Laban and Esau. Jacob had wrestled with God at Peniel. Now he seems to be wrangling his way out of God's calling back to Bethel. So Jacob was not fighting any bears right now. He was at peace. And he, had, he seemingly had made a vow to God in Genesis 28 when he was on, a run, on the run from his angry brother, brother. Let me ask you, have you ever made a vow to God in a time of distress? And then when things kind of calmed down, you forgot about it? I think we're to be honest, we all have, hadn't we? That's where Jacob was in a time of distress on the run from his brother. He says, Lord, I, I, you will be my God. I'll give you a tenth of all that I have. And I will return, if you'll allow me to return to this place safely. But now he settles in Shechem. He's got a nice land. There's no, no battles. He's not fighting, wrestling any bears. He was comfortable living near a godless city. And he was about to allow his children to intermarry with godless people. Jacob was not where he was supposed to be physically nor spiritually. Two things. Jacob seems to have lost his vision. Jacob seems to have lost his vision. In Genesis 31, 13, again, God speaks to him. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land and return. Jacob was on his way to Bethel, but he settled at Shechem. He'd settled on a city on a slope. He'd lost his vision. Another aspect of this too, Jacob was called to be Israel. Jacob was was called to be Israel, a nation that was set apart for the Lord. Jacob should have never considered intermarrying with these Canaanites. As a matter of fact, his father Isaac had warned him, do not take a local woman for your wife. Do not marry one of the Canaanite women. Go back to your family. Marry someone from your family. So he had been warned about intermarrying with the Canaanites. But now he seems to be kind of okay with this fact that his daughter, Dinah, will now marry one of the locals. See, what would happen was the Canaanites were the majority. And they didn't want to become Jews. They wanted the Jews to become one of them. Look at verse 23. There, Hamar says, will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. So the Shechemites wanted to own what the Israelites had. It was not the other way around. Jacob thought that he was safe with these friendly people, but he was in great danger. His family was in great danger. And here's the reality. The nation of Israel was in great danger. So if he had accepted the Shechemites' offer, ultimately the nation of Israel would have vanished, having become a part of the Canaanite culture. There should have been no desire on Jacob's part to settle down until he arrived at the place that God had called him to be, at Bethel. He's inside the borders of Canaan, but he wasn't at Bethel. He could rationalize in his mind that he'd obeyed God by returning to the land, but he wasn't at Bethel. What do we see? We see that partial obedience 
is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Jacob made sacrifices, but without total surrender. Sure, he sacrificed, he set up an altar, he was going back, but he still had not totally surrendered to God's plan. He was still operating on his own agenda. Jacob being Jacob. He'd lost his vision. Jacob also seems to have forgotten his purpose. Jacob was no longer a sojourner. He had settled down, been living in a place for 10 years now. Up until that point, he'd been living in tents. Again, which we see in the book of Hebrews, that that's kind of the picture of God's people in this world. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our treasures are like, you know, the old country, the gospel song. And that's the picture of God's people. But Jacob had built a house. Jacob had built barns. And the sad part, he'd built them in the wrong place. He'd purchased property. He'd, he was called to return to Bethel, and yet he settled in Shechem, a city on a slope. He was called by God to be a blessing to the nations. This was his purpose. God told Abraham, through you, Abraham, and through your descendants, all the nations will be blessed. Now in anger and revenge, what had Jacob's sons done? They went out and they slaughtered the local men. They captured the local women and children, made them slaves. They took captive all the livestock. Was that a blessing to the nations? No, they had lost his purpose. He'd forgotten his purpose. Jacob's testimony after this, as we can see in verse 30, he feared for his life because of their revenge. Also, we'll see next week in verse 2 of chapter 35 that that in the 10-year period, that Jacob and his sons had begun to take pagan idols into their home. So in chapter 35, Jacob finally gets it. He's going to go to Bethel. After all that happens in this chapter, he's going to Bethel. But one of the first things they do, he has to get rid of all the pagan idols in their home. So what does that tell us? That they'd forgotten their purpose. Their purpose was to be a blessing to all the nations, to show all the people that there's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah. Now, he is the one true God. And yet, Jacob had settled in Shechem. He had taken pagan gods into his own home. He was willing to intermarry with the local godless people. Jacob, the city of Shechem, was not the only one on a slope. Jacob was living on the slippery slope of compromise. Do you see that? Jacob was living on the slippery slope of compromise. He began to compromise in many areas of his life. He'd forgotten his vision. He had forgotten his purpose. He was on the slippery slope of compromise. Once we lose sight of who God has called us to be and we forget our purpose, then we are in danger of becoming like the world. So Jacob settles in a land just short of Bethel. Secondly, we see that Jacob suffers greatly because of his compromise. Church, let me tell you, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever we sow, we will reap. We may not see the results today, but eventually when we begin to compromise in our life, we will see tragic results. And that's what happened. And it took, you know, it was a period of 10 years. But chapter 34, what do we see? We see Jacob's daughter is physically abused. Dinah was a teenager at this point and wanted to go over to her friend's house. 
Typical teenage thing, isn't it? She wanted to go, look what, what the scriptures say. She went out to visit the daughters of the land. Obviously, she went to see the wrong girls. Maybe she had the wrong friends. When I was a youth director, you know, youth directors never die. They just put them out to pastor. But when I was a youth pastor, I would tell our kids, every friend you've got will do one of two things. They'll either encourage you spiritually or destroy you spiritually. You say, that's pretty strong. Well, that's the truth. There's no middle ground. They will either encourage you spiritually or destroy you spiritually. Dinah went to see some girls. And while she was there, she was attacked in the city. Jacob, as I said in verse 5, is strangely silent about this. It's obvious that Hamar saw nothing wrong with his son's action. He comes with the boy in verse 6 to, uh, to negotiate a wedding for the two. He never offered an explanation or apology. Now again, remember in the Canaanite culture is a godless culture. And as I've read, it seemed that unattached young women were fair game to young men. There was no moral standard. So Dinah being an unattached young woman in the eyes of Shechem, the Canaanite young man, she was fair game. Obviously his father felt the same way. The scripture says that Shechem humiliated her. We know that it was a... uh, an attack of sexual nature because in verse 31 of chapter 34, look at Simeon and Levi said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? He took her by force and laid with her. Jacob again was silent. But although he was silent, don't you know that Jacob's heart was broken as any father's heart would be knowing that his daughter had just been attacked by a young man. This may not be fair to Jacob, but let me ask you a question. Would this have happened if Jacob had continued on to Bethel instead of settling in Shechem? Probably not. Probably not. Not only was his daughter physically abused, but his sons became savage avengers. When Shechem did, what, what Shechem did, the boy, to the diner was certainly wrong. There's no way to justify what Shechem did. But there's no way also to justify what Simeon and Levi did. They avenged their sister. They were angry. First of all, they were grieved. As you know, when you hear something like this, you're you're just sad. And then the more they thought about it, the angrier they got. And so they came up with this plan. And they deceived the local men. Then they went in with a sword and they murdered. They it was a slaughter. It was a massacre. Of the worst degree, what they did to the men of Shechem in the city, they were defenseless and they went in and with the edge of the sword, the scripture says, they destroyed every male. The purpose of their massacre was to get revenge and also to send a message to the Shechemites, don't you mess with us. Don't mess with us. Again, God's purpose was for his people to be a channel of blessing. Verse 30 tells us that Jacob was appalled by the way his sons acted. He had no part in their plot, again, to do what they did. And you know what? Their actions would haunt them the rest of their life. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, we're going to skip several years. Jacob is on his deathbed. He has 12 sons. Benjamin's going to be born next chapter. He's got 12 sons, and he begins to talk about each son one by one. And most of the sons, not all, granted, received some sort of blessing from their father. 
But listen to what Jacob says about Simeon and Levi. Genesis 49, 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. If you know, later on in the book of Joshua, the Levi never, they became priests. They didn't own any land. And Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, was incorporated into the tribe of Judah. Never had land of their own. So Jacob was true to his word. Jacob deplored the actions of his sons, and he remembered this tragic event to his dying days. Would this have happened if Jacob had traveled one more day to Bethel before he settled? One of the saddest things about this story, too, is Jacob's response. Let's look at this. His fearful response is to try to appease. Jacob's trying to, he's okay negotiating with Hamar and uh, Shechem, even though he knows Dinah has been violated. And then the, the most telling thing about Jacob, though, is in verse 30. After his sons have gone in and massacred these Shechemites, look at verse 30 again. Let me read it one more time. You have brought trouble on me by making me odious or stench among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites and my men being few in number, they will gather against me and attack me and I will be destroyed. And I and my, what do you hear there? Is Jacob concerned about Dinah? Is Jacob concerned about Simeon and Levi? It's all about me. It's all about me. Jacob was motivated by fear. And to me, Jacob's fear for his life is very revealing. Obviously, he had forgotten his vow to the Lord as well as the Lord's promise to him to bring you back safely, to bring you back safely to Bethel. It seems that the city of Shechem was not the only thing sitting on a slope. Jacob was sliding down the slippery slope of compromise. Pastor Colby read a while ago from Psalm 1, when we begin to walk with the wrong crowd, after a while we begin to stand with the wrong crowd. And before you know it, what are we doing? We're sitting in the seat of scoffers. We're sitting with the wrong crowd. That's the compromise we see in the life of Jacob. A subtle yet dangerous process that nearly destroyed him, his family, and the nation. It appears when we begin to compromise our faith, we begin to doubt the promises of God. So these tragic events remind us of three things. Number one, God's purpose, God's sovereign purposes will be accomplished. Again, this is a horrible story. I'm glad the children are in children's church for the most part. But it's a horrible story with fear, lust, sexual assault, deceit, and murder. But church, we need to see that God works through And oftentimes in spite of sinful men. God works through and awful in spite of, oftentimes in spite of sinful men. The Bible is a real story about real people and a real God. And there's a lot of heartache. 
But the purpose of this story, I believe, is to show how God in his sovereign grace could achieve his purpose through Jacob and his sons in spite of their disobedience. This was not the end of the nation of Israel. They did not. God protected them. They did not intermarry here. This was not the end of the story. But what about us? What about your story? What about my story? What about the tragedies in your life? What about the tragedies in my life? Our purpose is to bring glory to our Father. Our purpose is to bring glory to our Father. Jacob's promises, excuse me, Jacob's problems were the result of small compromises. We talked about that. He failed to fully obey. It's interesting, though, I love that in 3320. He set up an altar there, though, didn't he? He had this form of religion, but yet he was denying the power therein, as Paul talked about. He never totally forsook the Lord. He never totally gave, say, I don't believe that anymore. But yet what did he do? He tried to combine the two, his worship with God and yet his desire for the things of the world. James says that's a dangerous combination. James 4 says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? We can't live with one foot in the world and one foot with the Lord. What's the source of quarrels and conflict, James says, within you? Is not the source your, your, gel, your uh, what is it? Your lust. There you go. That wage war in your members. Had a brain cramp there for a second. But when we begin to desire the wrong things, that's what happened in the life of Jacob. See, the greatest dangers in our life are always subtle. The greatest danger to the church is not persecution but it's the subtle influence of our culture. See, Satan is too subtle. He's too wise to dump the whole load on us. He's too wise to come up to our men and say, hey, would you like to destroy your life and put your family at great risk? (laughs) He's too smart for that. But what does he do? Subtle temptation. Subtle opportunities to compromise, just like we see in the life of Jacob. This compromise is a different way of thinking. The greatest dangers in life are always subtle. The greatest danger to the church is not persecution. It's the subtle influence of our culture. We call this influence the world. That's what the Bible calls the world. And I'm not talking about birds and bees and lands and seas. When I talk about the world, I'm talking about a philosophy of thought that says what the world has to offer is more attractive better for you than what God has to offer. Let me say that again. The world's philosophy is what the world has to offer is better for you and more attractive than what God has to offer. And see, what we find is that eventually the things that begin to attract us often attack us and they destroy us spiritually. Compromise. The influence of the world. That's why we're warned in 1 John 2.15. It says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. What begins to attract us will attack us. Our purpose is to live for the glory of God. Paul says everything we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all for the glory of God. Our sin causes us to fall short of that glory. The gospel restores our purpose as we no longer have to live in sin. But we are now in Christ and he is in us. 
And here's the deal. God still uses us in spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness. As we said many times, it's the brokenness in our life. It's the tragedies, the mistakes that we've made, and the the brokenness that allows God's grace into our life. But it's also through these events that God's grace shines out to the world. And we do offer the world hope, not because we're perfect, but because we are forgiven in Christ. And God is a redeemer. And he's redeemed us. Partial obedience is disobedience. We're going to close just thinking about where do, where do you see areas of compromise in your life, in my life? You know, I think we often see this in the pressure, the peer pressure, to be like the world in our homes, to be like the world in our business, our social activity, the way we dress, men and women, the way we dress. Do we compromise in the way we dress? Do we compromise in our conversation? Have we developed a friendship with the world, a dangerous friendship that James warns us about? You know, one area I thought about in partial obedience is disobedience is is a major part of the story because Simeon and Levi wanted to get revenge. Their sister had been mistreated. Let me ask you, you're here in church this morning, but are there people in your life that you've never totally forgiven? Are there people in your life that you would love to do what Simeon and Levi did to these Shechemites? I mean, you'd never take a sword and just go in and massacre people. But in your heart, you've been hurt so deeply. In your heart, I've heard Christian men and women say, I will never forgive that person. They're still coming to church. They're still in worship. Partial obedience is disobedience. Until we surrender and totally forgive, we will never be set free from a pit pit of bitterness. See, you, you will remain a victim until the day you forgive. You will remain a victim of some cruel attack, some injustice in your life until you forgive. But the day you forgive, you will be set free. You will be set free. Simeon and Levi took vengeance into their own hands. They wanted revenge. Partial obedience is disobedience. We see our Father is the only righteous avenger. Our Father is the only righteous avenger. There's a lot of heartache in this world and people are cruel and hurtful. You may be the victim of someone's vicious, senseless actions. Again, as I said, many people remain the victim all their lives because they fail to forgive. Too many people find their purpose in life is to get revenge. To get even with their attackers. They would love to do something like Simeon and Levi did to Shechem. But listen to me now. I, I have not had a daughter sexually abused or a child killed by a drunk driver, as many people have. But as believers, we trust what the Word of God says. Should we be like Simeon and Levi and go and exact our own revenge? Should we work all of our life to get even with those who've hurt us? That's not what the Scripture says. Look at Romans 12. Never, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Let me tell you what this verse does not say. It does not say that we cannot seek justice through the court system for those who have harmed us. Because we can We can seek justice through the court system. That's what Peter says is the purpose of government. 
for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who, who do right. That's the purpose of government. For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So we have every right as a Christian to seek justice through the system. But here's what Romans 12 tells us that we can, uh, we cannot do. It says, it tells us that we do not have to live with bitterness and anger, seeking revenge the rest of our life. That's what Romans 12 says. We don't have to live with bitterness and anger, seeking revenge the rest of our lives. We're set free to be able to forgive. And we can forgive because we have been forgiven. Jacob and Dinah, Simeon, Levi, they were all a mess, weren't they? Hey, we're all a mess too, aren't we? We're all broken in different ways, but we're all broken. But God's grace, by His grace, we've been forgiven, we've been restored. We again have purpose. We again have vision because we belong to God. We must forgive and not take our own revenge. This story also reminds us that, and this is not in your outline, but our Father is the perfect Father. If you're taking notes, please put that in there. Our Heavenly Father is the perfect Father. See, I believe that chapter 34 is a lesson to fathers. Men, have you ever made the mistake that Jacob made by making decisions that were financially prosperous but were disastrous for your family? That's what Jacob did. He settled in Shechem because it was peaceful there. He had all this land. He had all the, there were no bears to fight. Everything was good. It was profitable for him materially, but it was disastrous for his family. Men, I pray that you will never offer your family on the altar of success. You will never alter, offer your family on the altar of success. I believe that was part of Jacob's problem. See, fathers, our family's under attack. We can't afford to be passive like Jacob. He was just silent when he heard about it. Now, again, we don't know all that's going on, but he didn't, have, he didn't try to stop his sons. He didn't try to end this conversation. He didn't, you know, I'd have hit Shechem in the mouth. Wouldn't you? I'd have been more like Simeon and Levi and probably in a heap of trouble. But he just responds in a passive way. See, our family's under attack. The battlefield for us men is every day. Things that happen in your home, it's a battlefield. Things that happen at the bald field, it's a battleground. Even when your daughter goes to visit her friends, we can never let our guards down. Never. Because we're in a spiritual battle. And Jacob let his guard down. Unfortunately, there are no perfect fathers. We've all made mistakes. And it's easy for us to see where Jacob failed Dinah and his boys. You know, some of you here this morning may have had an earthly father who let you down when you needed him the most. And I hear that often. My father let me down. My father was abusive. My father never cared. There are no perfect earthly fathers. But thankfully, the gospel points us to our heavenly father, who is the perfect father. He does not abandon us when we abandon him. He offers us his hand of love in our darkest, most lonely moments. He puts up with us in spite of our stubborn will. Our heavenly father loves us more than we love ourselves. He continues to pour out his blessings on us even when we respond so poorly. Our Heavenly Father repays our sin with His love. 
He is constant and unchanging amidst all the changes of the world. Let me ask you as I close, do you know that father? Some of you say, I'd love to have a father like that. I'd love to have a father who never lets me down. I'd love to have a father who loves me in spite of my mistakes. The scripture says, but as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Behold, what manner of love is this, that God has called us to be his children. We have that kind of heavenly father who loves us in spite of our sins. You don't know Christ today, come to him. And Christians, what do we do? Let me just offer this simple, maybe oversimplified, but Here's what I think as I've studied and prayed through this. We need to focus more on our father than we'd focus on the world. We need to focus more on our father and what he offers us through Christ than what the world offers us. You know, we're too easily satisfied. We're satisfied when the things of the world, when God offers us himself. God offers us eternal blessings. Don't settle for second or third or fourth best. Focus on our Father rather than the world. I think when we do that, the areas of dangerous compromise would become fewer and fewer as we focus on the Lord. And let, let me just close one more thing. I'm firmly convinced that one of the greatest problems in the church is unforgiveness. There are too many people in our church who would rather have revenge than, than freedom. You will never get freedom until you forgive. As long as you seek revenge, you will continue to be a prisoner. You will be in bitterness, that that prison of bitterness, until you forgive. Too many people would rather have revenge than forgiveness. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for Genesis chapter 34.